In part 1 of this series, we covered the early history of the Persian people and how Cyrus, the ruler of a small kingdom called Anshan, founded what later became known as the Achaemenid Persian Empire. This was the largest, most multicultural state of its day, and it got even larger with Cyrus's son, Cambyses II, who conquered Egypt. However, shortly after this, a usurper sat on the Achaemenid throne. Cambyses rushed back to Persia to deal with him, but died on the way. To the rescue came one of his very capable relatives, who claims to have slain the usurper, put down at least nine other major rebellions, and ultimately become the new ruler of the Achaemenid Empire. This man was Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, who not only saved the Achaemenid Empire and expanded it, but also initiated a number of reforms to strengthen its core. In fact, it seemed that nothing could stop the great king until his forces had a mishap with the Greek city-state of Athens and its allies at the famed Battle of Marathon. Undeterred, Darius planned a new invasion of Greece and southeastern Europe, but he died before that could happen. The task of this, and holding the Achaemenid Empire together, went to his son and successor, Xerxes. When Xerxes took over in 486 BC, he pretty much had everything that a new king could ask for. Not only did he inherit the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen, but he was also directly descended from arguably two of history's greatest kings. His father was Darius the Great, but his grandfather was Cyrus the Great. This was because his mother, Atosa, was Cyrus's daughter. Darius had married her in order to help further legitimize his claim to the throne. Xerxes, whose name in Old Persian is Kayarsha, meaning he who rules over heroes, or king of heroes, was not Darius's only son, nor was he the eldest. In fact, Darius had many wives, but Xerxes's descent from Cyrus, the founder of the Achaemenid Empire, gave him further legitimacy in the eyes of many nobles, as well as the common people. Xerxes's reign, though, started with revolts in important parts of the empire. The first, which had actually started shortly before Darius's death, was in Egypt. Though we don't have the details, Herodotus tells us that Xerxes crushed the revolt and installed his brother, Achaemenes, as Egypt's new satrap. While Achaemenes may have been able to have kept Egypt under control, Herodotus implies that he was a bit harsh, which, as we'll see, may have created even more resentment against Persian rule and helped to fuel the great rebellions that were still yet to come. In 484 BC, revolts also broke out in Babylonia. The causes here are also unclear, but the rebellion was ultimately crushed within a year. It could have been that in both cases, the rebels were testing the new king to see if he'd be as tough as his father, Darius. However, the result ended up being even worse for them, in that Achaemenid oversight of these satraps became more stringent than ever. With the empire now secure and Xerxes proving that he had what it took to keep it together, the new king started to look abroad and complete what his father had started in the Aegean. Though it's difficult to look into the mind of a man who lived over 2,500 years ago, it's likely that Xerxes' ambitions in Greece were greater than those of his father. Whereas Darius merely wanted to punish Greece, as well as to create a security buffer for the Achaemenids' most western possessions, Xerxes, who had just successfully put down rebellions in Egypt and Babylonia, probably sought to add Greece and the nearby areas into the Achaemenid family of satrapies. For this, though, he needed more than just the small, token force that Darius had dispatched to put the islands of the Aegean, Eritrea, and Athens in line. Instead, Xerxes needed a full-scale invasion force that could definitively subdue the area once and for all. To safely carry the necessary troops, horses, and supplies to the Greek mainland, Xerxes would need more than just ships. His men would have to march over land as well. To get them there, Xerxes ordered two massive bridges to be built across the Hellespont to allow his men to cross from Asia into Europe. 
Not only were they engineering marvels for their day, but they also must have intimidated the Greeks with their sheer size and sophistication. The bridges would also allow the Persians to cross the Hellespont quicker than being ferried over by transports. In addition, scouts were sent in advance to determine not only the best route through Thrace into Greece, but also what areas would be good to use as bases and campsites for such a large army. By late 481 BC, Xerxes' invasion force had assembled at Sardis, with the king himself arriving at the head of his personal imperial guards. His men spent the following winter of 481 to 480 BC conducting military exercises and preparing for the day when they would be called into action. In the meanwhile, other men established contacts with potential allies in Greece, as well as gathered as much intelligence about the enemy as possible. Reports came in that in spite of the looming Persian threat, the Greeks were still very disunited, and at most would be able to bring together a force of perhaps no more than 40,000 hoplites and maybe 400 ships, the bulk of them coming from Athens. In terms of sheer numbers, Xerxes' army and navy could easily outmatch anything that the Greeks could muster together. Though Herodotus's claim of Xerxes amassing an invasion force of over 2 million fighting men is discarded by nearly every scholar on the subject, the vast majority of them do contend that it was certainly a much larger force than the Greeks could put together at the time. Most estimates realistically put the number closer to 80,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry. Though some have argued that in total, Xerxes may have had as many as 200,000 men. The bulk of these came from Persia, Media, and Eastern Iranian satrapies such as Bactria, Parthia, and Sogdiana. In addition, were the famous corps of warriors known as the 10,000 Immortals, plus units made up of Scythians, Babylonians, Kushites, Judeans, Lydians, and other peoples from the Persian Empire's many provinces. It's also estimated that the Persians commanded between 400 to 600 ships, many of them manned by Phoenician sailors and Greek mercenaries. In early 480 BC, Xerxes and his army set off on the 800-mile journey to Athens. Pacing roughly 10 miles a day, the Persians marched north from Sardis to the Hellespont, where they crossed it on the pontoon bridges mentioned earlier and marched into Thrace. From there, they went west towards Macedon, where Xerxes received the support of King Alexander I. It's ironic because about 150 years later, another Alexander, the descendant of the one who met Xerxes, would march in the opposite direction. From Macedon, Persian forces marched south past Mount Olympus and into Thessaly. It must have been an absolutely stunning, if not intimidating, sight for the Thracians, Macedonians, and Greeks who observed such a grand army, the likes of which, as far as we know, had never been seen before. Perhaps due to this, several Greek city-states, such as Thebes, sent messengers to Xerxes offering their submission. Thus. Within just a few months, Xerxes had extended his authority through nearly half of Greece without a single battle. However, not all Greeks submitted so easily. Led by Athens and Sparta, about 30 Greek city-states formed a defensive league to check the Persian advance. Realizing that they were greatly outnumbered and would lose in a conventional, pitched battle, the Greek coalition devised a plan to lure the Persian forces into a trap. The Greek mainland, especially central Greece, had many narrow passes and straits, where a small force could gain an advantage. In the end, the Greeks chose to make a stand at the Pass of Thermopylae and the Straits of Artemisium. Thermopylae was a narrow pass roughly 60 to 90 feet wide, with mountains on one side and the sea on the other. To the east were the Straits of Artemisium which were formed by the large island of Eboia along the eastern coast of Greece. The Persian fleet would have to get past Artemisium in order to sail south through the channel separating Eboia and the mainland. When Xerxes' forces reached Thermopylae in August of 480 BC, he met resistance there from a force of about 7,000 Greek soldiers, including 300 Spartans led by King Leonidas. The full Greek force hadn't yet assembled. To the east, 
the Greek fleet under Themistocles laid in wait. For several days, the Persians attacked the Greeks from the front in an effort to distract them, while the immortals went on another path through the mountains to outflank the Greek position. When Leonidas figured out what was happening, he ordered the other Greeks to withdraw and to get to safety, while he and the Spartans remained to hold off the Persian advance. Herodotus, though he wasn't there, tells it best. It is said that Leonidas himself sent most of them away, as he was worried that all of them might otherwise be killed, but he felt that for himself and the Spartans with him, it would not be decent to leave the post that they had originally come to guard. He perceived that it would be ignoble for him to leave the pass, and that if he were to remain, he would secure a lasting glory and assure that the prosperity of Sparta would not be obliterated. Though they fought heroically, the Spartans were eventually killed by the Persians and their allies. The road to Athens was now clear for Xerxes' grand army. However, when they finally reached Athens, they found the city nearly deserted, save for a few resistance fighters guarding the Acropolis. The rest of the Athenians had fled to the nearby island of Salamis. The Persian army quickly dealt with the token resistance on the Acropolis, and then, finding no one else in the city, set Athens on fire. It was here, though, that Xerxes made a tactical error, one that ultimately may have cost him the war. Instead of continuing to move further south into the Peloponnese, Xerxes sent his navy against the Greek fleet. The two met in September of 480 BC in what became known as the Battle of Salamis. When the Persian fleet ventured toward the straits between Salamis and Athens, they were smashed by the defending, mostly Athenian ships, whose captains both knew the waters and the winds of the area much better than the Persians. By the end of the day, the waters around Salamis were littered with the wreckage of ships and dead men, mostly from the Persian side. What remained of the Persian fleet was forced to withdraw, meaning that the troops on the ground could no longer rely on them for support. The Persian army headed to the north and resided in Thebes for the winter. Soon after, Xerxes left his general, Mardonius, with a sizable force before heading back to Sardis with the rest of his men. In the spring of 479 BC, Mardonius retook what was left of Athens and tried to negotiate with the Athenians, but to no avail. He then took his army to the plain of Plataea in central Greece where the Greek alliance consisting of mostly Spartans and Athenians pursued him. There, the two sides, which by now were evenly matched, fought in a series of clashes over several weeks. The Persians and their Theban allies clearly had the better cavalry, but the Spartans and Athenians better infantry. The allied Greek numbers continued to grow from reinforcements, and so Mardonius sent his cavalry to attack their supply lines. The Greeks tried to restore these under cover of darkness, but as the day broke, Mardonius could see that the Greeks had become disorganized and scattered across the plain. He used the disorder to attack, using his infantry to fire a volley of arrows, and then charged the enemy with spears and swords in hand. Neither side seemed to hold any advantage until Mardonius himself fell, which was a huge psychological blow to the Persian forces, and who with their allies began to retreat. The Athenian-Spartan coalition was in hot pursuit, and any Persians that survived the Greek onslaught fled back to Persian territory and the city of Sardis. Whatever land in Europe that Xerxes had gained during the prior year had now been totally lost. In addition, the Greeks had put the Persians on the defensive in Ionia after an unexpected victory at a place called Maikale, today in southwestern Turkey. In 478 BC, the Greeks, led by Athens, met on the island of Delos to form an anti-Persian alliance that became known as the Delian League. Over the next few years, the Delian League brought over more Ionian cities to their cause, as well as launched attacks on Persian-controlled territories in the region. Despite having some success, 
The Delian League was not able to completely dislodge Persia from Greek affairs. In addition, Xerxes didn't seem very keen on devoting more resources to the Greek menace on his western frontier. This may have been due to rebellions elsewhere that we're currently unaware of. Remember, much of what we know about Achaemenid Persia comes from Greek sources, and these two deal mostly with the western part of the empire that was closest to Greece. We have little knowledge of what was transpiring in the eastern provinces of the realm, as there are few records pertaining to those areas. There was more to Xerxes, though, than campaigning in foreign lands. History seems to only remember his unsuccessful campaign in Greece, and modern movies such as 300 don't do anything to improve his image. However, if you take away all of this negative press, the reality is that Xerxes was still an extremely powerful monarch. After all, the empire he ruled over was still the largest, wealthiest, and of course, most powerful in the world at that time. Xerxes also followed the example of his father, Darius, in many ways. One of these was in maintaining and expanding upon the empire's infrastructure network. Xerxes was also a great builder. In fact, Many of the great palaces and other monuments at Persepolis date to his reign. According to his own inscriptions, he followed his father's footsteps by claiming to be doing Ahura Mazda's work on Earth. One of his inscriptions from Persepolis reads, A great god is Ahura Mazda, who created this Earth, who created yonder heaven, who created man, who created blissful happiness for man who made Xerxes king, one king of many, one lord of many. I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries containing all kinds of men, king on this great earth far and wide, son of Darius the king, in Achaemenid, a Persian, son of a Persian, a noble, having noble lineage. Sometime in July or August of 465 BC, Xerxes was assassinated. He was supposedly 60 years old at the time. A Babylonian tablet tells us that he was killed by his son, though which son isn't disclosed. However, Greek writers Cytisius and Diodorus Siculus claim that he was killed by one of his advisors, Artabanus. Though their versions differ, they both report that Artabanus tried to take the throne for himself. But when one of Xerxes' sons found out about the plot, he had Artabanus executed and crowned himself as the new king, taking the throne name Artaxerxes I. Like his father Darius, Xerxes was also laid to rest in a tomb carved into a cliff at Naqsh-i-Rustam. The transition from one king to another was never a sure thing, and like his father and grandfather, Artaxerxes I had to take decisive measures in order to consolidate his power. Due to the treachery of Artabanus, Artaxerxes reorganized the government and put men loyal to him in positions of power. The historian Diodorus Siculus writes the following of his first year on the throne. In this year, Artaxerxes, the king of the Persians, who had just recovered the throne, first of all, punished those who had had a part in the murder of his father, and then organized the affairs of the kingdom in his own interests. Thus, with respect to the satraps in office at the time, he dismissed those who were hostile to him, and chose from among his friends those that seemed most capable, and gave the satrapies to them. He also concerned himself with both the revenues and readying the forces, and since, generally, his management of the whole kingdom was mild, he enjoyed the full approval of the Persians. There were also several revolts against Artaxerxes' authority. The first one that we know about was in Bactria, which was quickly suppressed. However, a more serious challenge occurred in Egypt, where in 463 BC, a rebel leader named Inaros launched a revolt and killed the Persian satrap of the country. 
Inaros, though, didn't have enough support to control all of Egypt. In fact, he didn't even have resources to take the capital, Memphis, which still had a Persian Median garrison there, along with Egyptians loyal to Artaxerxes. And so, he sent ambassadors to Athens in the hopes of securing an alliance. Thucydides describes the situation better than anyone else. Inaros led in revolt most of Egypt from the Persian king, Artaxerxes. After taking over power himself, he called in the Athenians. The Athenians happened to be engaged in a campaign against Cyprus with 200 ships of their own and of their allies. They abandoned Cyprus and came, sailing from the sea up the Nile, gained control of the river and two-thirds of Memphis, and attacked the third section called White Castle. Inside were the Persian and Median fugitives and the Egyptians who had not joined the revolt. In 460 BC, Artaxerxes sent reinforcements to aid those still loyal to him, and finally, after fierce fighting, defeated the Egyptian rebels and their Athenian allies. Those who tried to flee were rounded up in the Western Nile Delta. After a year and a half, they surrendered, in the hopes that it would allow them to return home. While some of them did manage to return to Athens, most were killed or made prisoner, with their ships being confiscated. By 457 BC, Artaxerxes' men had captured and executed Inaros, ending the current Egyptian rebellion. For the time being, the Achaemenids were back and had proved that any gains made by the Delian League could be reversed. The Greeks, though, especially the Athenians, were still harassing the Persians on Cyprus and other parts of the eastern Mediterranean. Artaxerxes, though, probably didn't want to start another armed conflict in Europe, and so in 450 BC, the Persians and Greeks signed a treaty called the Peace of Callias. The basic terms of the treaty were that the Athenians agreed not to attack Persian territory in exchange for the Persians allowing the Ionian cities to remain autonomous. The details of the treaty, at least according to Thucydides, were as follows. When Artaxerxes, the king, heard of the setbacks on Cyprus, he consulted with his friends about the war and decided it would be better to make peace with the Greeks. So he wrote to the commanders in Cyprus and to the satraps on what terms they might settle with the Greeks. As a result, Artabazus and Megabizus sent ambassadors to Athens to discuss a settlement. The Athenians were favorable and sent ambassadors with full powers, headed by Callias, the son of Hipponicus. And so, the Athenians and their allies agreed a peace with the Persians, the main points being the following. All the Greek cities of Asia are to be autonomous. The Persian satraps are not to come nearer to the sea than a three days journey. No warship is to sail inside Phaselis, or the Cyanian rocks. If the king and his generals abide by these terms, then the Athenians will not campaign in the territory over which the king rules. When the solemn treaty had been concluded, the Athenians withdrew their forces from Cyprus, having won a brilliant victory and concluded a most remarkable peace. Despite the treaty, both sides still tried to undermine the other via proxies. Persian foreign policy had changed. By this time, the Achaemenids had learned that while the Greeks hated each other, they would unite against a foreign invader. Thus, it was much easier for the Achaemenids to control Greece by using diplomacy and gold. Overall, this strategy worked extremely well. Such a strategy might also have been the reason as to why most of Artaxerxes' reign of 41 years was quite stable and relatively peaceful. He continued the building projects of his ancestors, especially at Persepolis, and was considered by many to be a wise and tolerant ruler. According to Cetisius, Artaxerxes died peacefully in bed in 424 BC. His succession, though, was anything but peaceful.
Upon Artaxerxes' death, his son, Xerxes II, became the new king of kings. But, at least according to Cetisius, he was assassinated after a mere 45 days by his half-brother, Sogdianos, who declared himself to be the new king. Perhaps out of paranoia, Sogdianos began antagonizing influential members of the royal court, as well as important army officers. He even had the commander of the elite palace guards murdered. Finally, after perhaps six months, another son of Artaxerxes, Umakush, who the Greeks called Ochus, and at that time was the satrap of Hyrcania, marched on the capital with an army and defeated Sogdianos. Securing the support of other influential Achaemenids and nobles, Ochus ascended the throne and became Darius II of Persia. The fact that Darius II had to kill his brother Sogdianus to obtain the throne must have shown those in the provinces that the Achaemenid royal family was crumbling from within. Due to this, several opportunistic satraps toyed with the idea of independence from the crown. Unfortunately, Sogdianus wasn't the only brother Darius II had to fight. Shortly after becoming the new king of kings, another brother, Arcetes, with the support of other powerful military commanders, made a bid for the throne and rebelled. Though initially having momentum, Arcetes' revolt was put down, and he and his supporters were killed. In 416 BC, eight years after becoming king, another major rebellion broke out against Darius II, this time orchestrated by Pisuthnes, the satrap of Sardis. Pisuthnes had been the governor of the province since 440 BC, which was well into the reign of Artaxerxes I and 16 years before Darius II. Therefore, he was both a capable administrator as well as a known political figure throughout the Achaemenid Empire. Not only this, but being the satrap of the westernmost Persian province, he had access to Greek mercenaries as well as the resources to pay for them. Darius II sent Tissaphernes, one of his most talented commanders, to suppress the revolt and restore order, which he was able to do. As a reward, Darius II made him the satrap of Sardis. However, Bisuthnes' son, a man by the name of Amorgis, rekindled his father's revolt two years later in 414 BC, this time with a bit of help from Athens. The plan, though, greatly backfired, especially for the Athenians. At the time, they were also fighting against Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. Citing Athenian support of Amorgis as a breach of the peace of Calais, Darius II threw his support behind Sparta and its allies, which ultimately allowed them to defeat Athens and become the dominant power in Greece. In 413 BC, the main Athenian fleet was destroyed in an attempt to take Syracuse, giving the Spartans, perhaps for the first time, control of the seas, especially the Aegean. Tissaphernes took advantage of the situation and used it as an opportunity to re-establish Persian control over the Greek cities of Ionia, which had, up until then, been under Athenian domination. He made a deal with the Spartans, whereby Persia would ally with Sparta in return for control of Ionia. The terms of the treaty, according to Thucydides, were as follows. The Spartans and their allies made an alliance with the king and Tissaphernes on these terms. All the territories and cities which the king has now, and which the king's father held, shall be the king's. And the money and everything else that has been coming in to the Athenians from these cities, the king and the Spartans and their allies shall act together to prevent the Athenians from receiving either the money or anything else. The war with the Athenians shall be waged jointly by the king and the Spartans and their allies. Ending the war with the Athenians may not be done unless both sides agree. That is, the king and the Spartans and their allies. Anyone rebelling against the king will be the enemy of the Spartans and their allies and anyone rebelling against the Spartans and their allies will likewise 
be the enemy of the king. Shortly afterward, Darius II sent his son, who history calls Cyrus the Younger, to relieve Tissaphernes and command his troops in the west. Cyrus, though, had ambitions of his own. Though popular, his older brother, who would go on to become Artaxerxes II, had been chosen to be the crown prince. Cyrus is said to have personally reached out to many Greeks, especially the Spartans. A few scholars even believe that he may have been instrumental in putting an end to the Peloponnesian War. This seems strange, because if the Greeks were fighting amongst themselves, then they were much less likely to cause trouble for the Achaemenids. However, because Cyrus perhaps wanted to be able to call upon his new allies, should he decide to face his elder brother over the throne, he may have sought a quick end to the domestic Greek conflict. Shortly after the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War, Darius II died and was succeeded by his elder son, who became Artaxerxes II. As had happened once before, the restless Egyptians once again rebelled, and this time were able to break away from the empire completely. In 401 BC, Cyrus the Younger made his move and marched from the area around Sardis towards Mesopotamia. There, Artaxerxes' army of 40,000 strong was waiting for him near the town of Konaxa on the banks of the Euphrates River, which was about 80 kilometers or 50 miles north of Babylon. Along with about 20,000 Persian and Median troops who were loyal to him, Cyrus also had about 10,000 hoplites under the command of a Spartan general named Clyrcus. Two ancient historians who wrote about the battle, namely Xenophon, an Athenian mercenary who was fighting on the side of Cyrus the Younger, and Cetisius, a Carian Greek who was serving as a physician for Artaxerxes II, claimed that the rebel faction fell apart after Cyrus was killed in battle. The bulk of his men were routed, and most of the Greek commanders who had participated in the campaign captured and executed. However, most of the rank-and-file Greek mercenaries managed to return to Greece, though the journey back was filled with untold dangers, as the now mostly leaderless army was in a hostile land and without a patron. Xenophon later wrote about this journey in his famous work, Anabasis. In it, Xenophon depicted Cyrus the Younger as a talented yet tragic figure who would have made a great king. With Cyrus the Younger out of the way, Artaxerxes II reversed the pro-Sparta policy of his father, Darius II, and instead courted the Athenians. This was because the Athenians were no longer a threat to him, unlike the Spartans, whose fleet posed a potential danger to the western provinces of the empire. In 394 BC, Artaxerxes II's navy was able to destroy a large Spartan fleet at the Battle of Nidus, just off the coast of Caria in southwestern Asia Minor. Any Spartan possessions on land were also taken. The exhausting wars between Sparta and Athens had forced both of them to sign what became known as the Peace of the King. According to the agreement, all lands that had been lost by the Persians were given back. At the same time that Artaxerxes II was forcing concessions from Athens and Sparta, he was also supplying their longtime rival and staunch Persian ally, Thebes, with weapons and monetary support. These were then used by the Thebans to attack and achieve military victories over the forces of both Athens and Sparta. Artaxerxes II was quite successful in his dealings with the Greeks. However, this didn't mean that all was well. With easy access to mercenaries, many satraps in Asia Minor had formed their own private armies and began flexing their muscles against the king. The 360s BC saw revolts in several regions of Asia Minor, the most well-known being those of Datamis, who was the satrap of Cappadocia, what today makes up much of central Anatolia, and of Ariobarzanes, the satrap of Phrygia, in northwestern Asia Minor. 
Such weakness in the west prompted the Egyptians to attack Phoenicia and parts of western Syria. And by 362 BC, it seemed as if the western part of the Achaemenid Empire would break away for good. However, the tables turned when Orontes, Artaxerxes' son-in-law, organized the assassination of Datames and had Ariobarzanes arrested and shipped to Susa to be presented as a prisoner to the king. As for Egypt, it turns out that a palace coup, which may have been inspired by Achaemenid gold, overthrew the new Egyptian pharaoh, Takos, also known as Teos. Having few forces to fight back, Teos sought refuge with Straton, the ruler of the Phoenician city of Sidon, who was technically a Persian subject. That was, until he was murdered, presumably by his wife. In the end, it's believed that Teos fled to the Persian winter capital of Susa in order to seek asylum in Persia. Recent findings seem to indicate that Artaxerxes eventually sent him back to Egypt as a prisoner, where he was taken into custody by the new pharaoh, Nectanebo II. With all of the major troublemakers apprehended or killed, stability slowly returned to the western satrapies of the Persian Empire. However, the rebellions had exposed just how fragile the Achaemenids' grip on power could be. In the end, Artaxerxes II reigned for 46 years, and though there were some turbulent times, much of his reign proved to be quite stable, and he found plenty of time to renovate several buildings in Susa, Babylon, and Persepolis. In 360 BC, when he was around 70 years old, Artaxerxes II made his eldest son, Darius, the crown prince. However, and according to Plutarch, Darius was found guilty in a plot to seize the throne, which, when you think about it, makes little sense since he was already the crown prince. Anyway, Darius was executed, with Artaxerxes II's son, Ariaspis, chosen to succeed him. He, though, committed suicide. Artaxerxes II died shortly afterward in 359 BC, and another son, Ochus, took over as Artaxerxes III. Before becoming king, Ochus had acted as a commander in his father's army, where he had helped to defeat Artabazos, the Persian satrap of Phrygia who had rebelled against the crown. As King Artaxerxes III, he proved to be the kind of ruler that the Achaemenid Empire needed to reverse its declining fortunes. One of the first things that Artaxerxes III did was to take back Egypt. Recall that the land of the Nile had been lost during his father's reign, and previous efforts to recapture the country, even one by Artaxerxes III himself, had failed. However, on his second attempt, he first captured and then killed Egypt's ally, the Phoenician king, Tenes of Sidon, and also put down a revolt on Cyprus that had the support of the Athenians. After the eastern Mediterranean had been subdued, Artaxerxes III once again ventured into Egypt with a massive force to face the armies of Pharaoh Nectanebo II. In their first encounter, the Persians defeated the pharaoh's force of mostly Greek mercenaries, and Nectanebo fled to the Egyptian capital of Memphis. This either must have really lowered the morale of the Egyptians, or maybe he had already been an unpopular ruler because Egyptian garrisons left and right surrendered or defected to the Persians. By the summer of 343 BC, Egypt was once again back within the Achaemenid fold. Things looked good for Artaxerxes III, and his empire seemed secure. However, political developments to the west in Macedonia were starting on a course that would ultimately put the Achaemenid dynasty in grave danger. Around 340 BC, King Philip II of Macedonia attacked Perinthos in Thrace in an attempt to control the Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits, which connected the Black and Aegean Seas. The Athenians, who feared that the entire Greek peninsula would be overrun by Macedonians, sent a messenger to Artaxerxes III pleading for help. According to the historian Diodorus Siculos, 
The siege was taking a very long time. But with many in the city dead, quite a few wounded, and supplies running out, the capture of the city was expected. Fortune, however, did not overlook the safety of those in danger and brought them help from an unexpected quarter. Philip's expansion had been reported in Asia, and the Persian king viewed his power with suspicion. So he wrote to the satraps by the sea to aid the Perinthians as much as possible. So, after consultation, the satraps sent to Perinthos a troop of mercenaries, ample funds, sufficient food, armor, and everything else needed for war. The force supported and funded by Artaxerxes was able to dislodge the Macedonians from Perinthos. However, this didn't stop Philip. Just two years later, in 338 BC, and with the help of his son, Alexander, the Macedonians defeated the mainly Athenian and Theban force at the Battle of Chaeronea. This basically forced the Greek city-states, with the exception of Sparta, to submit to Philip, who was also planning an invasion of Persia. That, though, was still a few years away. Just when things were looking good for the Achaemenids, Artaxerxes III and most of his family were assassinated. Greek sources state that the culprit was Bagoas, a close confidant of the king who himself craved power. Though not being able to rule directly, he used one of Artaxerxes' surviving sons, Arsis, as a puppet. In 338 BC, Arsis became Artaxerxes IV, but he soon learned of Bagoas' heinous crimes and sinister intentions, and so the latter had him and his sons killed. In fact, the only member of the royal family that could still claim a direct link to the Achaemenid male line at that time was the Achaemenid governor of Armenia, who eventually became Darius III of Persia. He would end up being the last Achaemenid king. Before he became king, the Greeks knew Darius as Kodomanus, the satrap of Armenia. Darius also knew Bagoas, because the two had once been sent by Artaxerxes III to subdue the Caduci, a nomadic people who inhabited the southwestern shores of the Caspian Sea. There, the young Darius won recognition for his exceptional valor on the battlefield. The Roman writer Justin wrote of Darius's legendary valor in his Chronicles, where he states, Though Artaxerxes had purified the kingdom, he made war on the Caduceans. In the course of it, one of the enemy challenged the army, and a certain Kodomanus advanced against him with everyone's good wish. He killed him and restored to his side, along with victory, the glory they had almost lost. For this achievement, Kodomanus was put in charge of Armenia. After a while, following the death of King Artaxerxes, the people made him king remembering his earlier prowess, and honored him with the name Darius, so that he might lack nothing of royal majesty. So now, Darius was back in Persia. Bagoas knew that he couldn't trick Darius as easily as Arsis, and so he arranged to have him poisoned. Darius though learned of the plot and forced Bagoas to drink the poisoned chalice himself, ending the conspirator's life and sinister ambitions once and for all. Though he had to deal with the inevitable revolts that often occurred when a new king took power, Darius handled these well. However, the real threat to his rule came not from within, but just outside Achaemenid territory. In 337 BC, Philip II of Macedonia organized what became known as the League of Corinth, whose express goal was to liberate all of the Greek cities that still remained under Persian rule. Serving as its leader, it was obvious that he planned on using the men from the Greek cities that he'd subjugated as soldiers to help him create a new Macedonian Empire. Unfortunately for Philip, he was assassinated, and so the task of going to war with Persia fell to his son, Alexander. In the spring of 334 BC, 
with approximately 50,000 men, though some have put that number to only 25,000, Alexander crossed the Hellespont and began his conquest of Asia Minor. Darius directed the local satraps, Arcetes, the satrap of Phrygia, and Sifridates, the satrap of Lydia, to confront Alexander and his men. Though the Persian side is estimated to have had around 20,000 cavalry and perhaps as many as 10,000 Greek mercenaries, they were still outmatched by the combined Macedonian-Greek force. The commander of the Greek mercenaries, Memnon of Rhodes, advised the satraps to conduct a scorched-earth strategy, which would have deprived Alexander's men of food and forced them to retreat. However, the satraps, whose own estates would be the ones put to the fire, rejected this idea and chose instead to fight. In the summer of 334 BC, as Alexander and his men marched from the west, the Persian army took up positions on the eastern banks of a river known as the Granicus. In the battle that followed, the Persian side became disorganized as their cavalry and infantry ended up not supporting each other. The Macedonians, though, were much more disciplined with their long spears, known as sarissas, and were able to create a phalanx formation that plowed through the Persian lines. Most of the Persian cavalry picked up and fled, leaving behind the infantry at the mercy of Alexander. He didn't have a lot of it, as most of the survivors were killed. Alexander was especially harsh on the Greek mercenaries who had fought for the Persians since he considered them to have been traitors for fighting against their countrymen. Even though historically, the Greeks were a generally disunited people who mostly looked down upon Macedonians. Along with being a victory for Alexander, the Battle of Granicus, often referred to as the Battle of the Granicus River, left much of Western Asia Minor exposed to the Macedonian forces. Alexander and his generals eventually took the cities of Ephesus, Sardis, Miletus, and Halicarnassus without much resistance. The Macedonians rested during the winter of 334 to 333 BC before heading out the following spring to take more cities in central Anatolia. By now though, Alexander's ambitions had grown. He was no longer content with just keeping Western Asia Minor. He wanted the entire Achaemenid Empire. The next great confrontation between the two sides took place in 333 BC near the town of Issus, also sometimes pronounced Isis, today in southwestern Turkey near the city of Iskanderun. Estimates of troops on both sides have always been hard to come by, but scholars believe that Alexander may have had 40,000 men in comparison to Darius III's 50,000. The Macedonians advanced in their usual formation, with light troops protecting both flanks, phalanx in the center, and Alexander with his heavy cavalry on the right. We won't go specifically into tactics here, but most writers and historians conclude that the battle was mostly a stalemate until Alexander led a charge that routed part of the Persian forces near Darius, leaving the Persian king vulnerable and within sight of Alexander. Some Greek sources claim that this frightened Darius and caused him to flee in fear, while others write that Darius fought bravely and only retreated after his guards had been killed. Regardless of the reason, Darius's flight from the scene caused panic amongst his men, with many of them fleeing the battle along with their king. Darius, though, did leave something very valuable behind, his family, which included his mother, wife, and several children. When Darius sent envoys to ask for his family's return and even offered to form an alliance, Alexander refused unless the Persian king recognized him as the master of all of Asia. Otherwise, he would continue onward, taking apart the Achaemenid Empire, satrapy by satrapy. Alexander continued down the coast of the eastern Mediterranean, where most cities surrendered to him without a fight. The exceptions were Tyre and Gaza. Both were defeated and afterward treated very harshly. This was possibly to make a point. Surrender to Alexander and survive, or resist and face death and destruction. 
Finally, after a long march, Alexander made it to Egypt, where he was welcomed with open arms. As we've seen in the past, the Egyptians were not the biggest fans of Persian rule, and so Alexander was seen more as a liberator than a conqueror. Like in other places, his stay in Egypt was rather brief, and in the spring of 331 BC, he left and headed towards Mesopotamia and the heart of the Persian Empire itself. With all of the successes and gold that Alexander was obtaining, he was able to attract more soldiers to fight for his cause. In the meanwhile, Darius III had also been building up a new army that some historians claim may have consisted of around 100,000 men. Of Darius's new army, Theodorus Siculos wrote the following. By the time Darius heard of Alexander's arrival, he had gathered an army from all over, and everything needed for battle was prepared. He had made swords and lances much longer than the earlier ones, because it was thought that this had given Alexander his advantage in the battle in Cilicia. The whole army was arrayed in shining armor and equipped with the best of commanders, as he proceeded from Babylon. With the Tigris to the right of his route and the Euphrates on his left, he advanced through rich land, able to supply abundant fodder for the animals and sufficient food for so many soldiers. He planned to draw up the army near Nineveh, as the plains there were well suited and provided plenty of space for drawing up his huge army. He pitched a camp at a village called Arbella. There, he drilled his troops daily and made them well trained by continuous exercise and practice. He was anxious in case there should be confusion because of the multitude of people who had been drawn together and spoke different languages. On October 1st, 331 BC, the two sides met in battle near the town of Gagamela, today near the city of Erbil in northern Iraq. Once again, the outcome remained undecided until a break was made in the Persian line, exposing Darius, who fled the scene yet again. Similar to the encounter at Isis two years before, many of the Persians panicked and fled the battle. By nightfall, all that were left were thousands of dead men and a victorious Alexander. After Gagamela, the path into Persia was left open. While Darius reportedly sought refuge in Ecbatana, Alexander took over the core cities of the Persian Empire, including Babylon, Susa, Pasargade, and Persepolis. Of all the cities, Persepolis was the greatest prize. It's said that it took Alexander's men three months to strip the city bare of its treasures. After he'd emptied it, perhaps deliberately, or by accident after a heavy bout of drinking, Alexander ordered the great city of Persepolis to be burned. Though Darius III still lived, the burning of Persepolis, the capital city founded by Darius the Great, in a sense, symbolized the true end of the Achaemenid Empire. Darius planned to make a stand at Ecbatana. In the spring of 330 BC, he received news that Alexander was marching on the city. Though he requested reinforcements, they never came. And so ultimately, Darius left for Bactria with a few thousand loyal men and wagons filled with treasure. Alexander, though, remained in hot pursuit and so the wagons, which were slowing down Darius's entourage, had to be left behind. Somewhere on the way to the easternmost provinces, a few of Darius's officers, most notably Bissus, the satrap of Bactria, betrayed their king. The Roman historian, Quintus Curtus Rufus, writing several centuries later, tells us what is believed to have transpired in that most desperate of Persian camps. He states, Inflamed with greed for the kingship, Bizus and Nabarzarnes now decided to carry out the plan they had long been hatching. With Darius still alive, however, there could be no hope of gaining such power, for among those peoples the king commands extraordinary respect. His name itself is enough to make them assemble, 
and the veneration he enjoys in prosperity remains with him in adversity. What inflated the wicked ambitions of the two was the area under their control, which, in terms of arms, fighting men, and extent, ranked second to none. It comprised a third of Asia and possessed a population of young men equal in number to the armies Darius had lost. They had little respect, not merely for Darius, but for Alexander, too. For from this area, they expected to recover the full strength of the empire, provided Darius fell into their hands. After long consideration of all the options, they decided to use the Bactrian soldiers to seize the king, and a messenger would also be sent to Alexander to inform him that Darius was alive and in their custody. If, as they feared, Alexander rejected their treacherous overtures, they would murder Darius and head for Bactria with the troops of their own people. However, open arrest of Darius was impossible because the Persians, many thousands strong, would come to the aid of their king, and the loyalty of the Greeks also caused apprehension. When they learned that Alexander and groups of Macedonians were approaching, two of the men in Darius's entourage, acting on the orders of Bessus, stabbed him and left him by the road to die. The historian Arian describes the final moments of Darius's life in his biography of Alexander the Great as such. Bessus and his companions carried Darius along with them for a while in a closed carriage. But when Alexander was almost upon them, Satibarzanes and Barsayentes inflicted a wound on Darius and abandoned him, while they fled with 600 horsemen. Darius died of a wound soon after, before Alexander had seen him. Alexander sent Darius's body to Persepolis and ordered him to be buried in the royal tombs, like the other kings before Darius. And so ended the life of the last Achaemenid king of kings, Darius III, heir to the empire of the Persians founded over 200 years prior by Cyrus the Great. As for those involved in Darius's death, Alexander had them rounded up and executed, including Bessus, the satrap of Bactria, who had ordered his murder and intended to replace him as king of kings, even taking the throne name Artaxerxes V. Alexander would continue to push further east with his now multinational force consisting of Macedonians, Greeks, Egyptians, Babylonians, and even Medes and Persians, finally ending up in India before reluctantly returning to Babylon, where he died in 323 BC at the young age of 32. As for the Persians, they continued to carry on over the centuries under several dynasties, most notably the Seleucids and the Parthians, until another native Persian dynasty, the Sasanians, whose founder, Ardashir, himself from a town not far from Pasargade, came to power in the year 224 AD. The stories of the Sasanians and other great empires are for another time, but you can be sure that we'll cover them here. As always, thanks so much for stopping by, I really appreciate it. I'd also really like to thank GrandKeck69, Yap de Graf, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, Daniel Allen, Danny Vanecka, WenXTV, Robert Morgan, Cher Cam, Farhad Kama, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all future content. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link in the video description. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as continue to listen to special audio programs on the History with Sai podcast. Thanks again, and stay safe. <laughs>